coming up next on the Wet Fly Swing Podcast. Once the fish are back in the river, so those escapement numbers in the 70s and the 80s, and I'm going to actually bump all the way ahead to 1997. So in 1997, you know, we had a run that wasn't that strong. But in 1998, we had a huge return. Those fish came out of the same ocean. So that, to me, is good evidence of how quickly things can change with with an improvement in ocean conditions. But also looking back to some of those lower years, which would have been brood years for years that have improved, what we know about steelhead here on the Skeena is that you don't need a large run to create a large run. That was Brian Niska with a positive outlook on the state of steelhead. Skeena Spay, Swing and Flies, and a Positive Outlook, today on The Swing. Welcome to the Wet Fly Swing Fly Fishing Show, where you discover tips, tricks, and tools from the leading names in fly fishing today. Hey, how you doing today? Thanks for stopping by the show. We just wrapped up the Steelhead School giveaway, and we got one more spot right now. If you want to grab your spot to head out to the Great Lakes for some steelhead, some spay, with Jeff Liskey, you can check that out right now. Head over to wetflyswing.com slash steelhead school. Today's episode is sponsored by Togan's Fly Shop, providing outstanding quality products at an affordable price. Great resource for fly tying materials, tools, and accessories. Since 2005, Togan's has been over delivering on price, service, and passion. And now it's time for you to check out Togan's right now. You can head over to wetflyswing.com slash Togans, T-O-G-E-N-S. Check out what Justin and the family have going on right now. We are also sponsored by Country Financial. Dalton is a local insurance agent with a Country Financial who thrives on helping families and community members through the power of education and proper insurance coverage. The unexpected will happen, so it's always best to make sure your assets and life are protected. You can head over to wetflyswing.com slash country right now to check out what Dalton has going and to support this podcast. Brian Niska takes us to the Skeena Basin with a focus on swinging flies for main stem steelhead. We find out how he targets migrating versus holding fish, when you should be fishing the shallow water, and how to get your swing to slow down. This one is jam-packed with tips and takes uh, on exact time, location, techniques, um, it's all here, and Brian is very articulate. This is a good one. So without further ado, here we go. Brian Niska from SkeenaFlyFishing.com. How's it going, Brian? Great, Dave. Hope you're having a good morning as well. Thanks for having me on today. Yeah, things are things are going great around here. We are in the planning for, well, the cool thing is it's uh, September. So, I mean, I know for you, September means uh fishing and uh, i'm sure you're taking a little break from your the, all the work you have going so we appreciate you taking some time we're going to dig into the skeena that's always a hot topic skeena river everything whether that's conservation or swinging flies it's a huge topic so we're going to touch on a lot of that talk a little about the steelhead um kind of status and a little bit on that but it's going to be a lot of tips and tricks i love to dig into how what you do is different from other areas around the country before we get there uh, bring us back quickly to how you first got into fly fishing and then we'll jump into the lodge sounds good uh you know for as long as i can remember dave i've been obsessed with with fish i think that's a familiar story for a lot of people in this industry um i've got a picture here on my uh in my office, I think I was probably about four years old with a, a rainbow trout on Okanagan Lake. 
And, and that's sort of a, a core memory that, you know, I can say is the beginning of this. And, you know, I think I got into fly fishing about 12 years old, which I think is a great age for people to get started. My parents bought me, you know, a, a kind of a low end eight weight mm-hmm. of all things. And it was a Christmas <laughs> present. And I lived in Port Coquitlam. And I went down to the De Beauville Slough and caught myself a, a nice little cutthroat on a, a little silver tinsel fly and let it go. And that was the beginning. Hmm. What was the, do you, that eight weight, what was the rod manufacturer? I think it was Abu Garcia, if I remember correctly. Oh, nice. Abu Garcia is so cool. I have a, have an old Lama glass eight weight. That's a, a super noodle, old graphite. And I, it's just a cool old rod, you know, it's from, I think the same thing. My dad probably got it when I was about that same age, right? Four, 13, 14, somewhere in there. Um, and then I know you have some kids. You've got, I think you've got three or four kids, maybe one on the way. Um, I've got a, I've got a couple of kids as well. They're 10. It's, it's interesting because it's a, it's an interesting time as they're trying to figure out things. And I, I of course want to get them into fishing and outdoors, but how's that look for your kids? Are they all, do you, do you see them as all swinging flies on the ski nut eventually one day? Or how do you look at that? You bet. So I've, I've got four, the oldest is six. Then we go four, two and three months. So no more on the way right now that I, that I don't believe it's good. we're going to have anymore. I think four is probably a, a good, a good crew, three boys, one girl. And we, we named our oldest boy. So we have, the boys are the oldest. Um, we named the oldest boy Fisher, which I guess is what you do when you, yep. you grow up at a fishing lodge. But I really have this philosophy of not forcing it on them. You know, they have access, yeah. which I think is really unique. You know, whenever there's an extra boat sitting around, we can hop in and where the lodge is situated on the Skeena, we've got, you know, tremendous home water. So we really don't need to go very far. I actually had the, the two-year-old out for the first time in the boat yesterday, and that went pretty good. And to be honest with you, most pretty much all the fishing I do with the kids is is what we call bar fishing up here. And and what that entails is throwing out a, a spinning glow, which a lot of your listeners are probably familiar mm-hmm. with. It's a little torpedo-shaped yeah. lure with wings that spins in the current. And we don't use bait or anything. We just throw that out. We don't put it out very far. And... You know, it's it's quite productive. It actually outproduces flies probably four to one. So the kids get some action and, um, you know, we have little spinning rods for them and also mess around a little bit with using Islander mooching reels. So that would be like the MR2 and, and casting it like a center pin, which, you know, introduces, basically it's like a fly reel at that point once the fish is yeah. done. So, yeah, that's a great way to get kids started. But, you know, I think a lot of times when I go fishing with the kids, it, it amounts to putting a bell on the rod and they're playing in the sand. Or my oldest is quite artistic and loves to loves to take chalk out on the river and draw on the log jams. Mm, nice. Woods and rocks. So it's, yeah, I think it's just getting getting that routine of wanting to go in the water, but not forcing it. And I, yeah. I, I just kind of wait for them to ask and then we go. Exactly. Yeah, I think that's the good way to do it. Yeah, don't force a rod into their hand. Just kind of, they'll pick it up. It's planting the scene. I, actually, I hear a lot of these stories where, people will do that. It won't even be, they'll do just like you're saying, and the kids might not pick it up, but you know, they turn around, they're 20, 25 years old and they, they have that seed planted and then they get into it. Right. So it's, it's still there, even if they don't pick it up. So don't worry, right. All the parents out there, if your kids aren't into it at age 14, 15, that's not a big deal. So, so this is good. Well, I want to hear about your transition to, um, to spay, cause that's a big transition for a lot of people. You know, I mean, I know for me, it was a big thing. And we've had a lot of stories, right? We've had, I know one I always think about is Marty Shepard. He was a skier, snowboarder back in the day. And he met this guy who had a lodge and he brought him into the spay game. But, um, and I know you have some skiing, right? You have a background. So talk about that. What was your transition like in the spay? You bet. So let's say, I want to, I want to put it somewhere around uh, the early nineties. 
I was fishing a lot of single hand stuff, fishing coho in the Fraser Valley, some steelhead fishing. And a buddy of mine had taken a course with a guy named Derek Brown, who uh, had come over from, from Europe. And, you know, so he, he was fishing the, the Thompson and it was a river I fished, you know, a fair amount, but, you know, sort of a, a place where the majority of anglers would be using two handers even back then. And so that was the first place I remember using a spay rod, a borrowed spay rod from uh, a friend of mine, Peter Morrison, who was the sage rep at the time. And, uh, you know, back then it was a, a long belly line on a 15 foot rod. And I was a pretty good single hand caster. And I remember trying to figure out the spay thing and think this is kind of funny because I can legit throw my five weight further than I can throw this 15 foot rod at the time. But obviously figured it out as, as we go and, and, and got a lot better and, you know, certainly saw the influence of, um, you know, the Skagit style and shorter heads and, and mono running line. And by the time we got to the late, the late nineties, I would say I was fairly proficient and was lucky enough to, to guide for Mike Maxwell, Mike and his wife, Denise, that would have been late nineties, early two thousands for a couple of years. So I got exposed to Mike's style. And, and at the same time, I had been going to the Fly Tackle Dealer show, and I'd, I'd met uh, Jorn Anderson, who at that time was mm-hmm. was um, ba- basically one of the people behind Loop, along with with Krister. And that was when you know things really took off for me because I recognized that you know lines that were shorter made more sense for most of the fishing that we were doing. Um, but at the same time, I still had that Skagit influence, which is very similar, right, with the shorter head. So what I was doing at that time is I was using the, the Scandinavian gear, but I was overlining it a bit to get more of that Skagit feel. And and at the same time, too, a lot of the casting I was doing was still influenced by Maxwell and what we'll call more of a traditional style. So I was really kind of this this mixing pot of coming up with my my own gig there. And, you know, shortly thereafter, I'm jumping ahead quite a bit, but... Yeah. Shortly thereafter, um, I, I wasn't really pleased with the equipment that I was using anymore. It wasn't anything against the loop stuff. It was just stiffer than what I wanted it to be. And for my casting and the, the casting that made sense to me, which was you know essentially a search for efficiency, I didn't want the load to leave the rod so quickly. And, and where I'm going with this is I was teaching a lot of casting, right? I master certified with uh, with the ffi mm-hmm. and you know coming from a ski instructing background teaching was my thing and if you're teaching spay casting you spend a lot of time telling people to slow down and that's really addressing a symptom not the problem and, and the reason that a lot of folks have trouble with applying power too quickly and i think it's a very natural thing dave is when you feel load leaving the rod your natural reaction is to speed up, right? So why were people feeling load leaving the rod? Well, it's because these rods were too crisp. They were essentially at that point, almost like single, big single hander. So I kind of came up with this concept and it's not unique. There's certainly, you'll find this, especially in Miser and, and a lot of older spay rods, interesting enough, where, you know, I wanted a rod that was softer in the butt, a little bit stiffer around the, the first stripping guide and then the very last little bit, the tip of the rod, I wanted that to be soft too, because I wanted that rod to bend as soon as it started to move. And at the end of the sweep, as someone was getting ready to transition into the forward cast, I didn't want them to feel like they needed to rush because load was leaving the rod. 
so I, I was I had this idea and I ran into a, a guy who is now a good friend named Jeff Piraway. And, and I, I'm not sure if you're aware of Jeff, but he yeah. has a, his oh, yeah. own rod company. And um, Jeff was interested in what I had to say. And we designed a, a series of rods together. Uh, it's still in production. I think we're, we're up to seven or eight different models now. Um, it's called the metal detector and super high line speed. But when you wiggle the thing, it, it feels like a noodle. And it's exactly what I just described. It's it's soft in the butt, quite stiff in the sort of where the first and second stripping guide would be, and and progressive through that middle. But the tip of it is 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 very soft. So even with in the swing and from a fishing standpoint, I think this is really important. Um, the rod feels loaded, right? It's not. It doesn't feel like you have a, a beach ball on a string. You really feel connected to what's going on. So that was, you know, sort of what I've been up to, and then I. You know, I, I ended up moving to Whistler because I was teaching skiing, and Whistler's a fun place to be. And previous to this, I'd, I'd been guiding in Chile, so I missed a winter, so I was keen to to get back into it. So I I was living in Whistler, and there's a ton of fish fishing opportunities, not just in Whistler, but in the surrounding areas, especially south towards Squamish. And um, you know, I probably spent 12 years in Whistler, and and in that time, uh, had a business with uh, a little fly shop. Um, fly fishing school, teaching lots of casting and doing guided trips, doing a fair amount of hosted travel. And, um, you know, did that up until about, gosh, I want to say about 2012. I actually had a little store in Squamish at the same time too. And a client of mine, guy I was doing a, a fair amount of destination schools with, um, a gentleman named Malcolm Wood, who, who's actually become quite a renowned environmentalist and, paraglider mountain climber type dude to have a bunch of restaurants he's actually currently in nepal um <laughs> climbing there but he uh you know he was up here in terrace uh we were doing a, a trip at a, a lodge here called z boat and the owner of that lodge was ready to retire he really just wanted to ski all the time and malcolm at that moment decided hey i'd like to try and catch the biggest chinook salmon anyone's ever caught on the fly and the way to do that is to own a fishing lodge. So he, uh, at, after catching a really nice fish here on the Skeena system, he negotiated a deal with Brad to buy his guide business on a napkin at lunch in the boat. <laughs> I happened to be sitting there. He said, hey, do you want to help me with this? And I was like, "Nice." that, sound, that sounds interesting. Without probably fully understanding the, the scope of the project. And to make a long story short, we... Uh, we ended up buying that guide business, and then we needed a, a lodge location, and we found this really cool spot. I mean, I knew it from the river, but we've got, you know, 10 acres on one of the best parts of the Skeena, and previously it was owned by a, a German family who ran it for about 30 years, and, um, you know, they were ready to retire, and, and we were able to take the place over and have been, you know, working on it since. But I, I'll tell you, the, the German family who owned it, Dieter, Dieter Ruby was the, is the gentleman's name. He had a really cool story. It's one of the coolest stories I know. And I have this sort of theory, Dave, that one fish can change everything. And certainly yeah. you know, looking at my situation there with Malcolm, you know, catching that, that big Chinook kind of changed things for him and made him make this sort of spontaneous purchase. Now, Dieter came over from Germany to visit a friend on the Skeena in the mid-80s. And the first fish he caught on the Skeena wasn't fly fishing, but the first fish he caught on the Skeena was a 68 pound Chinook or, or for your, your American listeners, Jeez. that's a King salmon. And that's a big one. 
And so he caught this, this tremendous fish and he said, that's it. He went back to Germany, sold his, the business that he'd been running and building there and came back over to Terrace, uh, him and his wife, Ushi and, and, and their son, Alex, and bought this great piece of property and, you know, spent the next three decades, you know, doing, building it up and, and doing their thing. And we were very lucky to be able to, to take it over and, and continue that. So our lodge, you know, was a barn before Dieter purchased it and he turned it into a lodge and we've renovated it. Uh, but it's, it's, to me, it's got a lot of soul because it's, you know, it's, it's basically got almost 40 years now of being a fishing lodge here on the side of the Skeena. Wow. So neat stuff. That's cool. Yeah, that is a great story. You, you were talking about, you know, we're going to dig into some on some tips on, on, uh, you know, fishing and stuff, but I was curious, you know, when you talk about, um, getting people to slow down, how do you, you know, loading the rod just to, just to, for a, just to kind of clarify that, like, what is the thing, you know, when you're out there teaching somebody or somebody listening now, how do they know when that rod, when that spay lines, let's just say they're fishing something like we're going to talk about today, a skagit or a, or, or a mix, how do they know when that's loaded? Sure. And I, I should clarify that if you're fishing with us today, your, your typical setup is going to be a rod around 12 feet long, maybe 12 foot 10, somewhere in there. And it's going to be rigged with a, a Skagit line. We, we tend to favor the Rio product. And, um, you know, depending on what's going on, it could be, you know, they're, they're 20 foot Skagits or it could be what used to be the Skagit Max. And, you know, what, uh, what we're doing for sink tips on top of that is almost exclusively Mo tips. And if people are familiar with MoTips, they would know that it's, it's a system that was designed to have a consistent grain weight attached to the front of the, the head, but at the same time allow the, the, the angler to customize how much of that sink tip was actually sinking. So MoTips are available in a variety of grain weights. You can get them in uh, T18, T11, T14, and T17. Uh, we tend to deal mostly with the T14 and the T11. Uh, mm -hmm. So these are called the medium and the and the heavy mo. So uh, the starting point is is typically in the T11, the five and five. So that means it's a ten foot tip, but only five feet of it are are the the, the tungsten material that sinks. The back five closest to the caster that's floating still. Why do we like these? Well, when we're fishing the Skeena, it's really important that we can we can fish precisely around structure, which is typically larger rocks. And even though a 12 and a half foot sink tip casts nicer and will help you throw beautiful loops, um, it tends to wrap itself around rocks. Yeah. Getting stuck to the bottom is no fun. It's no fun for the guide. It's no fun for mm -hmm. the caster. It often leads to people doing silly things like pulling hard on a snag and breaking a rod. So we yeah. love the Mo tips for that. And when we're talking about... Um, you know, we're, the type of water that we're fishing here on the Skeena, it surprises people because it's it's quite a wide river and it's fairly shallow, but we do most of our business within 60 feet of the shore. So if, if you're fishing with me on a typical day, I'm going to have you standing in a foot of water and I'm going to have you fishing at the most a 60 foot cast, disappointingly short cast. Yeah. And and the, <laughs> the, the, the shorter rods, those 12 foot to less than 13, they fish a lot better at that distance, even even a switch rod. Yeah. And are we talking to, you know, because like, the, the Skeena, obviously, you know, it has kind of the summer and then it's also got the spring. Are we talking summer fishing on the Skeena main stem right now? Yeah, I can uh, I can sort of break our season into three, yeah. parts, three parts for you. And then I'm going to jump back into the casting because that's where I was eventually Perfect. going with that in a yeah. roundabout way. Um, right. 
so we start fishing here, you know, sometime in March. And usually we'll open the doors for guests from about mid-March, third week of March through yeah, close to the end of April. Okay, so our spring season, which would be for winter steelhead, is, is quite short. Now, at the start of that, the river is going to be very low and very clear. And so so low and so much snow often on the banks that we can't launch our regular jet boats. We end up using uh, little inflatable jets that we can push along the snow and launch just about anywhere. So at that point, when the river is very low and clear, that's when you often find fish hanging a little further out. Now, there's some funny stuff that happens. Water temperature is very, very important to what we do. And when the water's too cold and it first starts to warm, that will actually pull fish into the shallows. And as long as the sun's not too bright overhead, you can actually find fish hanging out in ridiculously shallow water. And this could happen anytime in March or even the very beginning of April. Um, once we get to a point where the water's warming quite quickly, we, we actually can do very well with dry flies in the spring. And as the water temperature, sorry, as the water level increases, the fish tend to move closer to the bank. So, so two things will put the fish in close to the bank. One is if the, the river is really cold and the edges are warming faster, that'll move the fish in. And that's kind of the start of the season. And the other thing that will, will move the fish closer to the bank is if the water gets a little bit higher. And by the time we get to about mid-April, most years, the skein is going to blow out. This last year was an, was an oddity. This last year, the skein stayed in shape right into May. I know that's happened before. I just can't remember when. So uh, if you're fishing with us, say, mid-April, there's a chance that you'll be fishing the skeena, but there's a, also a good chance that we might be fishing some coastal stuff or even over in Kitimat. So then we, we've done the spring season. You know, it's... Skeen is moving into freshet. Um, it's time to garden, time to get ready for the summer. Uh, we're going to open the doors most years about mid-July. Now, I should tell you, a lot of uh, guides in this area will run a June season. For a variety of reasons, we choose not to. Uh, not, not the least of which is it takes a lot of, of work to get ready for the summer. And, and it's just easier to, to kind of focus on that. Most of the June fishing is on the Kitimat in this area, and that's a long drive from here. So to and you're not gonna, you know, we're a large lodge. We might have up to fifteen or twenty guests. You're not gonna take that many people to one spot. So a lot of the operations that do work the um, the Kitimat here for Chinook fishing in June, um, they tend to be smaller lodges, and they're only running a couple of boats. And the other thing that's really nice for us on a kind of personal slash business level is. You know, that Kitimat fishery is, is a great opportunity for our staff to, to actually get some fishing in. So, so opening up to guests mid-July, um, some years we can fish Chinook on the Skeena when it's open. Seems to be about 50% of the time these days. But that's usually when we start to run into a summer steelhead. So fishing the Skeena in, let's call it, from the last two weeks of July through till the end of August. This is the second part of the season. And this is characterized by very short casts, fishing the edges, and that's because the river is going to typically be higher then than later on. And also at that time of year, these fish are moving fast. These are fish that are heading up a long way. They might be going up to the Maurice or up to the Sustut. And it's not a good strategy for them to, to run out through the heavy current. You find them on the edges. And this is, uh, this is where those motips come in real handy. And I want to circle back and talk a bit more later on about strategies for moving fish versus holding fish. Cause there's, there's mm -hmm. a lot to learn there. 
Um, but I, I want to keep going with the season thing for a moment. So once we get to the end of August, kind of where we are now, start of, start of September, this is the sweet zone. There's no bugs. The, the length of day makes sense. You know, it's sun comes up about 6, 20, 6, 30. Uh, it's going to be dark again after dinner. The day just has a nice flow to it. It's, it's going to be probably 70 degrees out today. So you start the day with three layers on. You, you can get down to one layer throughout the day when it's warm. Um, it's just a beautiful time of year. The leaves have started to turn on the trees. And most importantly, from a fishing standpoint, the water temperature has dropped dramatically. I know this is going to sound strange to a lot of people who think hmm. they want the water warming for steelhead, but here's what happens on the Skeena. When the water temperature first drops dramatically, that cell sends a signal to these fish that are pushing through hard that it's time to sit. And once these fish start holding in the runs down here on the lower Skeena, they become a lot more approachable. And what hmm. I mean by that is in August and July, when there's you know volumes of fish moving through the system, um, you know it, it's a little trickier to find a fish that's hanging out for a bit and entice it to bite. Whereas at this time of year and they're holding, they become a lot more aggressive, even though the water's colder. That's different than what most yeah. people have been told, but it's the truth. That first little bit of cold, cold weather will cause the fish to sit. Once they're sitting for longer periods of time, they become more aggressive. And now we start thinking about dry flies. So July and August, that's summer, right? Hot out. We don't think about dry flies then. We think about dry flies when the water temperature here first starts to cool. September and October, great. Remember back to the spring, it's the opposite. We, we start fishing dry flies then when the water starts to warm towards optimal temperature. Um, so, you know, there's, there's a lot to learn here when you have this volume of fish moving by in such a big setting, meaning the, the, the Skeena. Yeah. Now, I want to I jump back in, if, if you're okay with it, and talk about where I was going with the casting. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And, and your initial question from like 20 minutes ago about slowing down. So, yeah. <laughs> so if you're casting a, a rig like the one I described, something with a Skagit head, and it's nicely, the line length is obviously nicely matched to the rod that you're using, um, the first concern is going to be getting the anchor in the right spot. Well, having a line length that's matched to the length of rod makes that pretty easy, regardless of what cast you're, you're choosing to do. So let's make the assumption that our, our caster has, has mastered the art of placing their anchor in the right spot. Okay. Now, yeah. the, ne the next thing they're going to do is, is they're going to enter into the, the sweep. So that's the set. The anchor is set. And now they're going to sweep. And the sweep is where load is created. And one of the things that, that I always try and get folks to do is to lift the rod before they sweep. So I want them to sweep the rod mm. with, with the rod tip slightly above head height. And, and so once they've started to sweep, I tend to coach a lot through the cast. So what I'll ask them to do is I'll get them to watch the 10 inches of overhanging running line that's immediately outside the rod tip. So you could say watch the rod tip, but specifically I want them to watch that line that first is outside of the rod tip. And, and what we're looking for here is we want that line to remain taut. We want to move just fast enough that that line is under tension, which means the rod's going to stay loaded. And then as they transition into the back cast and they're getting ready to move forward, obviously they're going to lift the rod. We're still watching that. We're not looking at the anchor. You could look at the anchor, but we're not looking at the anchor. We're watching that, that bit of overhanging running line to make sure it stays taut. And we're then going to think about this concept of, of no power before midnight. We're going to move the rod forward, but we're not going to do anything with our arms yet. We're doing this through the rotation of our trunk. Once you get to 12 o'clock, now it's time to bring the arms into it. And it's, 
you know, the, the goal is obviously to activate the bottom hand and the timing is, is similar to a, a double haul with, and, and actually the purpose of it is similar to a double haul with a single hander. Um, but what we want to do at this point is, is we want the top hand to basically behave almost like a, a basketball free throw. The bottom hand is doing the work. The top hand is, is guiding things. Mm, and when yeah. done properly, you won't hear much for noise. It'll be a nice, quiet cast. So once again, in the sweep, we're focused on the overhanging running line. If that running line is falling, that's a rare thing where we need to ask someone to go a little faster. If the running line is bouncing around, that's a great indicator that we're not being smooth and we're going too fast. But I'll tell you, when you get people to watch the rod tip and specifically that bit of overhanging running line, it it does two things. The first is it gives them this instant feedback for how fast they should be moving. And the second thing it does is it gets them turning. I talked about the importance of the rotation of the trunk. That's everything. The hands are the last thing, or the arms are the last yeah. thing that comes into, into play on the forward stroke. Uh, if you're if you're a right-handed caster and you, you have the ability to, to line up this way, you want to put your right foot forward with your essentially your foot facing your target. And when you do this, in the sweep, you can't over-rotate because you're blocked. So you're, you're basically setting yourself up for success. And if you think of it this way, at the start of the, at the, start of the sweep, your weight might be on your front, front foot, your right foot as a right-handed caster. As you complete the sweep and begin to transition into the forward cast, now your weight is transferred to your back foot. And then as you come forward, you're basically realigning your hips, which moves your weight back to your front foot. And at that point, everything's set to go and you can bring in the, the hands into it. And when you do it properly, you'll get a tremendous amount of line speed. It'll feel like you haven't done much. The rod's doing the work. And most importantly, it'll be quiet. And it'll be quiet. That's a good. And so going back to that running line, so you're saying the running line, so you've got your your tip coming up and you got running line ha hanging out of the last guide a little bit. It's not reeled up into the rod, into the guides at all. No. So you're going to have overhanging running line. Now, um, I've done a little bit of competitive casting and competitive casting, spay casting is done with shooting heads, just longer shooting heads. And in that situation, you'll find a lot of casters running a considerable amount of overhang. Hmm. They might run three or four feet. Uh, when, when you're fishing a, a Skagit setup, like the, the one I've described, you know, you can get away with a couple feet, but I usually start people about 12, 14 inches and, and that works well. And from a running line standpoint, everything we do is mono. I will take that sticky yeah. plastic coated yep. running line off of your reel as quick as I can and replace it with mono. Uh, there's a lot of options out there for mono though. Currently what, what I'm using and I'm a big fan of is a, is a product that I've been getting uh, out of Europe, and that, though it's actually made in Japan, called NAM, N-A-M, and, and that stuff is awesome. Uh, previous to that, I've used a little bit of OPST, a little bit of Slick Shooter from Rio. Yep. Uh, the Loop Shooter stuff is good. Basically, any type of flat beam mono, especially the stuff from Ken Sawada, that, that's where you want to be. The advantages of this, there's about seven of them. So a couple of the key ones would be you know, less space, less space taken up on the reel some more capacity which is super important here on the skeena where fish can get a long ways away from you um it just fishes better it's a tighter connection it doesn't get blown around by the wind um it doesn't feel sticky through the guides especially on a hot day and and probably you know from my my standpoint the most important part of it is is the way it fishes it just you know you you, you can see what's going on you can see bites before they happen essentially but that doesn't make any sense you can see bites as they happen yeah um, and one of the one of the things you'll hear from people about mono running line that they hate is they say oh it's it's coily well right 
two things happen. And th this is actually a really good tip that not too many people know about. So first off, hopefully your fly shop loaded it properly and they didn't pull it off the side of the spool and, and create a slinky for you. But when I was in Squamish, a lot of our clients fish the Squamish River on foot. And really, if you're fishing the lower Squamish, you only have access to the left bank. And the wind there is, is almost always blowing upstream. So especially with slick shooter, we would, we would often have people who have basically coming back in the front end of their running line is turned into a slinky. But here's what's happening. If they're a right-handed caster and they're on the left bank, let's say they're using a circle cast, their rotation is always clockwise. So for hours and hours and hours, they're rotating this thing clockwise, and that's how they're ending up with the slinky. So if you're using mono running line and you don't have access to both sides of the river and you're often fishing off the, the same side of your body, you really need to find a way to, to incorporate some rotation the other direction to keep your line going nice and straight. And the last tip with, with mono running line is... The older it is, the better it fishes because it's got a stretch. So why wait? Put that stretch in as soon as you get it. And a fantastic way to um, to, to get it set up for a nice stretch is, is to get it warm. And the best way to do that is just put it in a little bowl of, of warm water and, and give it a good hard stretch. And it's got memory. So once you get it stretched out, it will be a direct connection to the fish and it will be awesome. Today's episode is sponsored by Fairflies, who was founded with the idea of finding ethical solutions to fly tying materials and products. They've done just that by creating jobs for marginalized people and groups both in the U.S. and abroad. Their 5D brushes make fly tying fast and enjoyable for all skill levels. Fairflies has replaced craft fur with their own fly fur, a product made by fly tires for fly tires. And we had a recent podcast episode where our guest talked about this fly fur, how durable it is and how unique it is and why it is a little bit better in some situations than some of the natural stuff and even some of the other synthetics. So you got to check out fly fur right now. Fairflies also has fly tying tools and they cover just about everything in the fly tying space and innovation, a true do-it-yourself company helping you tie better flies faster. You can head over to wetflyswing.com slash fairflies right now. That's F-A-I-R-F-L-I-E-S. Support a great company with a great mission and this podcast in one easy click. And you were talking before we jumped into this, um, you mentioned through August. So as you get in end of August into say September, October, how long are you fishing the main stem skeena through this end of the season? Great question. We, uh, when we started this business, we used to go into, into mid-November. That was before I had kids. <laughs> Halloween, Halloween's important to my kids. It's nice to, be, uh, nice to be done prior to Halloween. So we tend to wrap things up by the third week of October. Fishing continues past that point, but that's just how we do it. And, you know, from a, you know, from a weather standpoint, this part of the world, once you get to the end of October, start of November it can be kind of inhospitable unless you're someone yeah. who really enjoys rain at about one or two degrees Celsius. Yep. Exactly. Yeah. It's pretty nasty. I remember it's been a little while since we've been up there, but we, we fished a little bit of the main stem, but you know, we fished through until I want to say, uh, early October. And then I think it started maybe spitting, you know, some snow and it seemed like that was time when do a lot of people clear out of there in, in October. Yeah, you know, it's funny, the busiest time on our section, and, and I should clarify where we fish. So we operate from Tidewater on the Skeena all the way up to Flint Creek, which is just downstream of Kitwanga. So this is a, a pretty wide area. 
and most of our trips will initiate out of the lodge and we'll we'll run up or down and you know we might drive in the boat throughout the day an hour upstream or down from here sometimes we will trailer but just the aesthetic of stepping into a boat in front of the lodge is, is preferable and you know i would say the busiest time of year is probably the end of august that's mm. and a lot of folks i think don't really understand um you know the, the, what i described earlier that importance of water temperature yeah. and, and how it relates to you know, the speed at which fish migrate, they kind of refer to the Thai test fishery and, and what they see on the Thai test fishery is that kind of the first week of August is, is generally the peak of, of um, migration for steelhead. There's a larger volume of fish moving through at that time. So they, they tend to, to center their fishing around that point, not understanding that most years, these first couple weeks of September actually fish better than any time in August when it comes specifically to steelhead. Now, folks that fish with us in August, and I'll tell you, for a first trip, like if someone called me up and said, hey, I've never been to the Skeena, when should I come? I often steer them towards mid-August because, A, yeah, sure, there's a lot of steelhead moving through, but, you know, assuming they're open, they're also going to be able to target pinks. There's early coho that come through. Um, occasionally, we'll hook a sockeye on the dangle. But, you know, the, the other salmon species that literally every salmon that swims is, is available at the beginning of August. So, so there's usually oh, a lot of action gotcha. for, for people. And they don't need to cast far, as I mentioned earlier. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I remember when we were up there, we de definitely got into a few other species. Uh, you know, I'd imagine some people that are focused solely on steelhead, right? The big skein of steelhead, they're probably like may maybe a little mad when they get a salmon that hooks up, but maybe, you know, who knows? But I mean, I, I, I want to go back to the, um, you mentioned the moving versus holding fish because that's a very interesting piece and that, that, all, that comes up a lot, right? You got high water, low water, fluctuating water. What are the fish doing? Are they holding? Are they moving? Are they on the inside, outside? So talk about that. How, if we're talking main stem skeena where you guys fish, how are you presenting your fly differently from uh, holding versus a moving fish? Excellent. So a lot of times if you talk to someone and say, oh, yeah, I'm going to fish the Skeena, what they're really saying is I'm going to go up and fish the Bulkley. I think yeah, exactly. <laughs> more than 50% of Skeena angling pressure. Ends or up, the Maurice. Yeah, it lands on the Bulkley Maurice. I kind of consider them the same river, the Bulkley and the Maurice. Um, but, you know, that is an area where that makes sense to people, especially coming out from the States. They're looking for the kind of the deep spot. Hey, and Brian, before we get into this, just remind me, I, but back when we did that trip, my buddy caught, it was like a 20, it was a huge, we were up on the Maurice. It was a giant fish, right? 20 pounder, whatever it was. I mean, how common is a 20 pounder on the Maurice versus say other areas around the Skeena? Because I know it's known for, right? Some of those areas have smaller fish or, or do they all potentially have these giants? Um, the, the Maurice is definitely known for smaller steelhead, but interesting enough, I think the biggest steelhead I've personally ever had on my line was was just somewhere close to where the Maurice turns into the Balkley. Um, but that is not that is not normal. Most of what you catch up there are much smaller. Uh, a six weight spay rod will serve you serve you well okay. in the Maurice. But but hey, this is a, a quick little side note. One of the yeah. great things about the Skeena, and I and I think it's part of its charm. It's certainly not a place where there's numbers of fish. The average um, over history, the average return to the Skeena is something like thirty thousand fish over you know, the entire year, but is the diversity. So you've got, you know, here where we catch literally the entire run that swims by, we'll catch 20 inch steelhead. Um, I've got a picture on my phone. It's not a fish that any of our guests caught, but it was some, 
something someone else caught of a 42 pound dead steelhead from back in the 80s. So this is kind of your size range, you know, from 20 inches yeah. up to 40 plus pounds. And, and they're all moving through the same water at a similar time. So yes, you're right. The Maurice is known for, for smaller fish, but there are some giants there. There are some giants. And it good, sounds good. like you guys were lucky enough to find one. So that's great. Yeah, we found one. So I cut you off there. So keep, I, I can't remember if you remember where we were at on, on your track there. You bet. So what I was saying is that most of the people who come up to the Skeena, fish the Bulkley, they look at the Skeena and they go, wow, that looks intimidating. I don't know where to start. It looks pretty good to me. But if, if I take the knowledge that I'm already armed with and I'm going to start at the head and I'm going to fish my way to the tail, there's not enough hours in the day for me to do no. this. So no. when, when I started fishing the, the lower Skeena here, um, I, I was trying to equate some of my experience from guiding on the Balkley here, and it just didn't transfer well. Even the gear didn't transfer well. On the Balkley, I was fishing like a mid-spay and 12-pound maximum leader. Here on the Skeena, we fish 20-pound maximum ultra green for leader. Uh, we fish you know, shorter lines, shorter rods. But So here's, here's the approach. And when you look at a piece of water on the Skeena, and let's say it's early in the season, it's moving fish, what you're looking for are the lateral moves. You're looking for the features. And you can kind of look at the features as macro and micro. But So I'll, I'll give you some examples of, of things that are going to, um, you know, should give you encouragement to, to dig deeper in a certain area. So if you see a canyon, that's important, okay? If you see a diagonal bar, that's important. If you see a tributary, if you see an island. So when you're looking at Google Earth and you're trying to think of where I'm going to try, you know, this is this sort of helps you hone in on areas to to dig a little deeper on. Now, when you find something that looks pretty good, and you you walk out there and you're looking at this big giant run that's about the length of a football field or or more. <laughs> um, remember, I said lateral moves. So, generally speaking, to me, when we're talking about you know steelhead water, there's a few criteria. So, one criteria is going to be speed and depth, and often they correlate. Another criteria is going to be location on the river. I just kind of touched on that. You know, is, is there an island? Is there a bend? Is there a rapid? Is there a tributary? And then the third one, which is most important universally, is structure. Now, structure can be different things. When I said structure, you probably immediately thought of a big rock. Yeah. And, 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 and that's what it often is. But structure could be, you know, uh, pink salmon um, reds or Chinook reds, something that creates undulations. If you're up on the Bulkley, we call them Bulkley buckets. A lot of times you're looking for the, the little deep hole. Um, structure, certainly on the Bulkley, could be ledge rock. Uh, structure could be woody debris. There's a lot of things that could be considered structure. And structure is very important. But here on the Skeena, we have this fourth criteria that is the most important thing, and that is lane of travel. Now, I don't for a second think every single steelhead takes the same path, but what I can tell you, and this, this is something I've learned probably best from fishing with my kids with the spinning glows is if you put that spinning glow in the right spot, it's a very productive, um, you know, way to find a fish. If you put that spinning glow in the wrong spot, it won't do any business. So understanding where to put the spinning glow and how far from shore and, and where the fish might choose to slow down is, is key. When we're fly fishing, it's a little bit different because our fly isn't always in that spot. Once I put the spin and glow out and the rod goes in the holder, it's not moving. It's in that spot doing the right thing. When I'm fly fishing or my clients are fly fishing, their fly moves through the right spot and it's there for a precious moment, right? And then they're going to cast yeah. again. So lane of travel. And I talked about the lateral moves. So here we are. We've got this big football field long run. 
Now I'm looking for the, the smaller features within there. Okay, so I see a little scallop bay or a point, um, or maybe there's a, a grouping of larger rocks that uh, are, are visible under the water. It's, this quick little side note, when the skein is big, like it's really big, and it will move, yeah. it will move tremendous sized rocks. Now what will catch these rocks and, and cause them to build up in clusters is other big rocks. So generally speaking, you won't find like one rock just sitting on its own. You'll find a cluster of big rocks. Now, once you found this cluster of big rocks, now you're onto something. Once you see a point um, on the, the bank, this suggests that there's a gravel bar that might extend out there. This would be like a diagonal bar. It could be, could be very obvious. It could be, you know, uh, more subtle. Changes in flow are obviously important. But but most important here are, are little bits that shallow out. So let's say we found a cluster of rocks. It's sitting on top of a diagonal bar, which extends off of a point from the bank. And, and we also have noticed by watching the foam as it drifts down that it doesn't drift straight parallel to the bank there. It draws across. Okay, now we found something. So remember, these fish are moving through. So it would be a very poor tactic to cast and take three steps and cast and take three steps. Th this is not a bad thing to do when you first roll up on this football field because you want to kind of experience the, the water and see what you see. But once you find something of interest, like this feature, now we need to sort of slow things down and, and become a trout fisherman. So I found my cluster of rocks. It's sitting on the diagonal bar. I, I noticed it as I was moving down because of the, the point extending off the bank. I was watching the foam. I see what's happening there. So now I am going to fish the top of those rocks. I might make uh, come up to some sort of general theory that I think the fish are going to move outside of these rocks. There, there's not enough depth there for them to move between the rock and the bank, and I can kind of see the bottom there. So I'm going to put a lot of emphasis into fishing the backside of those rocks and the outside of those rocks well. Or, or maybe it's the other way around. Maybe I think the fish are going to be on the inside. But I will give this theory a good day in court. And much mm -hmm. like my spinning glow that's just sitting out there, I, I'm not trying to suggest that I'm just going to stand in one spot, but I'm going to fish this feature and I'm going to fish it from different angles and different spots. And, and I'm going to consider this kind of like an ambush spot. And the idea is that if a fish is coming up, I don't think it's just going to swim past this feature. I think it has to sit and hold for a period of time and then make a lateral move to get around this feature. And that's when it's most accessible for me and my fly. Okay. Um, now when we're fishing as a group, and, and a lot of times when we're fishing the Skeena, I don't have people follow one another through the same piece. I'll give them their own feature to work, and I'll explain, you know, I'll, I'll set yeah. them up above it so they fish into it. But once they get to that spot, I'm going to say, okay, here, you can see how this is better. Everything we do is very instructional because, yeah. you know, that's what you're paying for. And we're going to work that feature hard, and then we'll move on to the next feature. And the nice thing about moving fish is it doesn't matter what happened 15 minutes ago. You know, every cast is a new beginning because the fish are moving through. And from a fish quality standpoint, Dave, there's nothing like it. I mean, yeah. this is when you go further up the system, fish have been caught before they're in where they hold is influenced by people. They've seen a lot of flies. Right. The fish we're catching yep. down here are behaving the way that they normally would. They haven't been influenced by people yet. And it's really bizarre because if you're up on a, an upper tributary, you're making this long cast and you're hooking a fish quite a ways out there. And often you're playing it closer to you. Here, we hook a fish like 10 feet off the bank um, with, with hardly any line out. And then it's just a rodeo of, of the fish streaking out to the middle of the river and, and not, exactly. not having the line wrap on anything. That's cool. 
That's cool. Yeah, this is really awesome because it's, uh, well, first you're, you're making that point. Like, yeah, you're down lower in the system. So you're getting all these fish going up to the babine, you know, the kiss biocs, right? These, these giant fish or the whatever, but you're getting the first shot at it before they've seen a lot of flies. So when you're, how many casts, like, let's say you got the bucket, the person's come down now, he's on that spot. You know, it's the spot just roughly. I mean, how many casts, different casts are you putting in that thing before you're moving down past that bucket? If I really believe in a feature, I'll give a feature half an hour to an hour, right? But I I will change my position a little bit as I fish it because I'm learning about the feature as I go. But when once I come to this conclusion, and and sometimes you catch a fish, so that really solidifies you know your thought process. Yeah. Once I come to this conclusion that hey, the fish are going to hold in this one spot, and and maybe I've 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 had some positive feedback in the sense of I've hooked a fish or two. then I might really kind of narrow down my presentation to, you know, just fishing the slot between these two rocks. Um, I remember listening to a, a, a podcast you, uh, you did recently with a guy who fishes the Great Lakes. And, yep. and he talked about the importance to him of having a high rod tip. And I, yeah. I can't agree more. If, if you just drop your rod tip, you're just along for the ride. And whatever the fly is doing, it's only going to do the right thing for a short period of time. You need to actually fish that thing. And, and here's a, another key for people fishing the Skeena in the summer for moving fish. So throw it fairly close to square. As it's going out, I'm going to do an aerial mend. So basically when the fly hits the water, I'm ready to fish. The fly's the first thing downstream. I am working hard to slow that fly down. Okay. Mm-hmm. And if you think about a gear fisherman who's fishing a float we often think they're more productive than us as fly fishermen. And part of the reason for that is, is they're floating something towards the fish, whereas we tend to be swinging something across in front of it. And if someone has a longer belly line and they're throwing way the heck out on the skeena and it's drifting across, the fish will see their fly for a short period of time as it yep. zips by them. If, yep. you, if you're concentrating on the presentation that I'm trying to describe here, where we throw it square, we slow the fly down, I've got my rod way up in the air, it's almost like I'm high stick nymphing. Yes, I'm swinging the fly, but I'm trying to swing it really slow. I'm trying to present the fly, and I can't confirm this because I can't talk to fish, but what I believe uh, the presentation that's going to work best for me is if that fish sees the fly kind of coming, drifting towards them, and then suddenly breaks away. I feel like that triggers a reaction where they want to grab it. So I want to drop that fly towards where I think the fish is holding, and then I want it to start to move towards the bank nice and slow, and that fish will grab it. So um, from a gear standpoint, I fish a very heavy reel, okay? Um, because that naturally tips my rod up. I hate it when someone hands me a, a rod to try and the reel's light on there and, and I'm constantly fighting to keep the rod tip up. I want right. the rod up because I can see the line, okay? Uh, the rods I'm fishing, as I mentioned, are, are really soft. So the rod feels loaded at that point. I'm fishing, the rod's basically bent through the swing. I'm going to see everything. I'm going to feel everything. It just feels fishier. And at the end of the swing, I'll drop the rod. So I'm going to finish up with the rod in a low position, basically pointing downstream parallel to the bank. But I'm going to start with the rod high. And that's my controls. How I drop the rod, how I hold it outside, how I move it inside. If I need to add some pace to the fly, I can I can move the rod inside a little quicker. If you just tuck the rod down right away, like I said, you're along for the ride. You want to fish yep. it. And I'll tell you, we, we, we put a lot of emphasis on dry fly fishing. We say, oh, dry fly fishing is an art. And it, it's a beautiful way to fish, and it truly is a mental exercise because to be successful dry fly fishing, you, you have to believe it's possible. You, you meet a lot of folks in Skeena country who brought along a dry line and never get it wet because they, they're waiting until that moment when they've caught enough fish on, on a sink tip that they think it's time to try a dry. But the truth of the matter is, if you fish a dry fly well, 
you will see the fish that move towards your fly without taking it because you're fishing in close. But dry fly fishing is actually pretty easy to do once you get past this, this mental aspect of believing it's possible. You know, you, you don't get stuck on the bottom. You can see what the fly is doing speed-wise. To fish a sink tip and a weighted fly around big structures, you know, volleyball-sized rocks, without snagging the bottom and trying to be within, let's say, eight inches of the rocks off the bottom. So to fish your fly close to the bottom, proximity to structure without snagging up, that takes actual skill. Yeah, uh, this is, uh, I mean, this is very similar. And that episode was with Jeff uh, Liskey, episode uh, 362. We'll have a link in the show notes because that was a cool part, you know, just like you're talking about here where, he, and he also talked about short leaders, but getting that fly right in, right in that bucket, right? Like dropping it right into the fish and then having the fish, you know, either take it or follow it and take it. Um, and this is different, right? This is different than your normal, typical summer steelhead, throw on a Scandi line, whatever, swing it down, you know, step, swing it down, step. So do you guys do any of that? First, do you do any of that, like stepping down stuff, like on long areas? And then also, how do you do the, the dry fly? You bet. So once again, you first roll up on a run, you're going to be moving through the run. I'm going to start you above. If I know that there's a feature there, I'm going to start you above that. Now, our river changes, height changes dramatically too. I could, if you're ever here, I'll show you the high water mark. It's about 20 feet higher than where the river is today vertically. Um, so from one day to the next, these runs will change and these different features will come into play and, and they'll come into play in different ways. But we will definitely fish our way to the feature. Once you're in the feature, I'm going to slow you down or you should slow down on your own once you understand what it is you're, you're doing. And so you, you know, you're covering water, you're working through the run. Now, Later on in the year, so kind of from this point forward, uh, we're, we're talking today yep. in, in kind of mid-September. Yep. Water temperatures cooled down, fish are starting to hold in the runs more. Yeah, now we're moving through the, the run. I'll, I'll get people to fish two or three steps between casts, but I also want them to slow down when they find the good stuff because we use the, the swing to find the good stuff. And I mean, how many times does it happen to you or someone tells you a story Oh, I just felt like I was going to get one. Well, why did you mm. feel that way? Because the water was better there. You could feel that, right? Yeah. Being in tune with what your line's telling you is really, really key. One of the other things that separates, I mean, I think it's really important to be to accept the fact if you're fishing for steelhead that that is better to be lucky than good. But one of the things that separates anglers who seem to consistently be able to find a fish or two is is they actually believe what they're going to do is work is working. So yeah. when they get a bump. They don't think, oh, that was a trout or a rock or a stick. They think, oh, I found a fish that's interested. Exactly. That's the point I always make with when I have new people, you know, out there, you know, it's always, you know, a tip, a tap, a tug, whatever, you know, even if there's smallmouth bass in the river or whatever, it's like, it's a steelhead. Like, that's it. You know, like, that's all it is. They don't think about anything else. Put it back, do the same cast, do whatever, do your little, your plan. But that's a steelhead, right? So that's what you all and you and do you think that is? I mean, like, how much truth is there to that? Do you think? I mean, what percentage of those fish? I know in our area, maybe that's different from yours. But are you potentially getting salmon tipping it and stuff like that? Yeah, I mean, salmon will, will bite the fly too. But you know, steelhead will show interest in a fly without taking it more often than they just grab it and swim away magically. The dry fly really teaches you that. Dave, you know, when you get really good at fishing a dry fly, meaning you get comfortable fishing it short and really understand to watch the area around your fly, if you're fishing a dry fly without watching the area around it, you're, you're missing out because what you will learn from fishing a dry fly well in shallow water is that way more fish 
come to your fly without taking it than the ones that actually grab it and go. And, yeah. and you have to think a similar experience happens subsurface. Yeah. And certainly, you know, these, these bumps that you and I are talking about, sure, they could be an eight inch bull trout, um, yeah. but they could also be a, a, a 17 pound steelhead. So yeah. <laughs> the, the anglers that are consistently successful are the ones that believe every single bump is a fish and are willing to repeat the cast and willing to let the fly, you know, fish its way out and they're not rushing to the next cast. But thinking about, you know, the winter and the latter part of the fall and and your comment about moving through the run, you know, our strategy does change when we believe the fish are holding. And when the fish are holding, we we move to them and, and we take big steps. When the fish are moving, we move slowly or, gotcha. we st- or we stand our ground and, and fish a feature, but do not treat all the water equally. You have to believe when it feels fishy to you and it feels like, you know, it's a likely looking spot. You, you got to give that spot a chance and to just put that same one cast through there and move through that you did to something swirly up top that didn't feel fishy. Yeah. It's just not a great strategy. No, no. And this is good. So basically, yeah, you've got some different things going on at different time of the season. So you are using this technique we talked about sinking it down with the moving fish when they're holding, that's more of your, maybe say your traditional summer steelhead type of thing where you're swinging down. What, what about, I mean, you still have buckets out there with summer when you're swinging for that. How, how do you deal with the situation where maybe the currents are kind of a little bit tricky? Do you ever find those places where, you know, there's a bucket, there's fish there, but there's maybe some rock that's really making it hard to get your, or it's sweeping your line down before your fly even gets to the bucket. What would be your tip there? If you're using more of your standard, and I'm assuming you guys are just using standard, like what, like Scandi stuff during later in the year, or what are you using? Now we, we tend to fish Skagit most of the time. We will use Scandi a little bit in the winter. Um, but generally speaking, we tend to fish Skagit lines and Scandi obviously with dry lines. Um, but I think the scenario that you're kind of describing here, what I'm picturing is, is a big Skeena flat, where the water had kind of slowed down, but there's also some big rocks. So exactly. So you're really, you know, you're fishing different lengths of casts there, right? So you're not putting the same swing through because you're going to wrap around a rock. So it's, it's, it's almost like pocket water, but it's a big flat. And, yep. and in that situation, we're going to use our feet. So you know how you set yourself up to 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 fish a spot by your position will greatly change the way you're able to swing the fly through and hold it in that spot. But once again, it's the same idea of, of looking at what's in front of you and fishing it like a trout fisherman or fisher person would, right? Rather than just blindly making the same cast and stepping. You, you really want to pay attention to where you think the fish would be. Picture the fish there and fish your fly to that spot where you think the fish would be. Today's episode is sponsored by Fishhound Expeditions, putting together remote Alaskan wilderness trips for that trip of a lifetime. And I can speak from experience now, having been up on the trip with Adam and the crew, uh, Will, Cam, we had an amazing trip. Nick, uh, we headed out there, did our uh, heli flight into remote Alaska, floated down the river with these guys, hung out by the campfire. I mean, um, they did it all, set up camp, had great food, uh, great fishing, caught uh, a few of the biggest rainbows of my life on this trip, um, got some salmon, uh, dolly varden, grayling, uh, just about everything, saw the northern lights, um, you know, saw, uh, saw Denali, uh, 21,000 feet, it was just an epic trip, so Adam has it going. Um, all the way down to those delicious cookies. So if you want to have that trip of lifetime, you got to check out Fishhound right now. They got the passion, 
They got the good crew and it's time. If you've been thinking about Alaska, this is the one to do it. Truly remote wilderness float trips. That's it. Go to wetflyswing.com slash fishhound right now. Check out uh, some information and to connect with Adam. That's F-I-S-H-H-O-U-N-D, fishhound. You support this podcast by clicking through that link to fishhound and getting started. Okay, back to the show. So we've dug into a little bit here. Uh, we're we're a good, yeah, you know, hour somewhere in that range, you know. Um, and again, these are these episodes. I knew this was going to be this way, right? Where we could we could probably sit here for four hours, easy, go through everything, talk, you know, dig into whatever. But I want to touch on the steelhead, just the um, the status, because I know you had an episode I listened to uh, with the River Rambler. Uh, Richard's doing a great job over there, and you guys dug into a lot of the stats. We're not going to get into like go deep I'll, I'll just put a link to that episode uh, that you guys did because you did a really good job explaining what you your take is like on where we're at because a lot of people are getting freaked out the numbers you know tanked last couple years everywhere right and everybody's like super worried but a thing I would go back to that I talked to people about is like in the early 90s you know down and around I mean numbers also tanked and then they climb back up and then you're like you know 2000s mid 2000s we had these huge runs so it's this cycle, right? It's natural cycles of fish and all that. But explain on top of that, what is your take in a kind of a shorter segment than you did with Richard? Like, are you positive on where we're at? And do you expect that we're going to have more larger runs as we move move ahead here? Yeah, great. How much time do you have? No. Um, yeah. <laughs> so you're pretty accurate there. I'm looking right now. I just pulled it up as you were talking. So there's about 70 years, almost 70 years of that that we've been enumerating skein of steelhead and, and we should understand that the, the primary way that we do this is off of that tie test fishery. And, and I think there's a lot of folks that don't fully understand how this works compared to say what happens south of the border. So we don't have a situation where there's a dam and we can count the fish individually as they go by. What we have is a 1200 foot long net that gets strung across a, a section of river that's two kilometers wide. So we're basically covering one small portion of it. And this takes place down near tidewater. And it's been somewhat consistently operated for 60 plus years. And what they do is they take the number of fish that are caught per hour and they multiply that by 245. And so essentially if the net was in the water for two hours and it catches two fish, uh, we say that there was 245 fish that swam through today. Okay. Um, so looking at this, the largest escapement year we've ever had was 1998, which because I can still remember 1998, I, I consider it uh, fairly recent. Um, the lowest year we ever had was 2021. That's last year. That's where a lot of this is coming from. Previous to last year, the, the second lowest year, which is pretty close numbers-wise, was 1957. So that was a long time ago. Um, third worst was 91. Fourth worst was 83. Then we're at 59, 79. So these are all over the map. You're right. This, this isn't like a, yeah. a consistent thing of, hey, we've had periods of low return and they've just continued. So let's jump back over into the good news, the, the largest year. So 98, I said, was, was number one. 2010 was number two. Third is 2000. Fourth is 2002. 84, 99, 2008, 2016, 2018, 2012. Okay, I want to stop and bounce back to 2018 and 2016 because those are fairly recent. Mm -hmm. in, in fact, if we're talking about 2018, 
the majority of Skeena steelhead will smolt at four years. So these are four-year-old fish getting ready to go out to the ocean, right? Um, that's kind of unique. A lot of places that'll happen at three. Now those fish might stay in the ocean for one years, two years, three years, four years, or beyond. Um, obviously the longer to stay in the ocean, the bigger the fish is going to be. So in a year like last year where we saw a lot of small fish, like the, the sort of, um, you know, the, the cliche, um, Maurice fish, those 20, yeah. 20 inch, 22 inch fish, uh, we, we make an assumption that those fish were in the ocean for a year. Okay. Um, when we see a big fish, we make an assumption that that's a fish that's been in the, the ocean for a long period of time. So 2018, well, you can do the math on that. When are we going to see the majority of those fish? And by the way, the, the number one most common life history of a skein of steelhead is four years um, fresh, two years salt. So that's a six-year-old fish, okay? I think, I think you can, you're picking up what I'm laying down here. Yep. So, yep. so this sort of doomsday narrative that, that because we had a bad year last year, things are, are going to go sideways – I think we need to understand why we ha saw a low return last year. Now, gosh, there's going to be some Googling taking place for anyone listening to this. Yeah. But the first thing they should go check out is Pacific Decadal Oscillation. PDO will probably get you there via Google. And, and what this is, is this is the movement of cold and warm water masses in the North Pacific. And they call it decadal because, you know, since they've been paying attention to it, it changes roughly once every 10 years. And we have just come through a period of the warm water phase. Um, I think a lot of people may have heard of the blob, right? Yeah, and yeah. what we have seen over the hundred years that we've been paying attention to this is that when we have this warm water phase PDO or in the blob, we end up with, you know, poor returns on all species of salmon and steelhead. Well, steelhead are classified as a, a salmon. So yeah. you, know, you, you get what I'm saying with that. Yeah. Now there's another thing that comes into play. This is ENSO. So, you know, you hear of La Nina and El Nino, right? If you're a skier, we get excited when we hear it's a La Nina winter. And we've had two La Nina winters in a row now up here. And, and we're forecast to have a third. So when you have cold phase PDO combined with a La Nina winter, that is the best case scenario for fish. The worst case is, of course, El, Nin, El Nino, with, yeah, El Nino. With, with warm phase PDO. So we've, got the best, we've had the best situation here for the last two years. And we're looking at another winter coming in with, with also the best. And we've been in the worst for, you know, previous to that for about a decade. So what did we see this year? What's going on this year so far? Yeah. Well, huge returns of sockeye pretty much everywhere, right? We, we, we exceeded the run size estimate by double this year. Uh, we've had a huge run of coho. Uh, steelhead is normal you know, over the course of history. Um, the fishing that we've seen this year is probably four times as, as, as good as last year, maybe more. And it's obviously still ongoing. And if you look even at Chinook and Chinook are very similar to steelhead in the sense that it's not a quick reaction to changes in ocean condition. Coho is a species that reacts quickly to changes in ocean condition because they're not out for very long. Um, but you know, some of our Chinook salmon here are seven years old. What did we see for a return for, for Skeena Chinook this year? Well, we're, we're well above the 10-year average, even though Department of Fisheries and Oceans, uh, which is our federal organization that mm -hmm. stumbles through managing our fisheries <laughs> um, from coast to coast, uh, they were forecasting a poor year. I mean, how can they get this wrong? Yeah. When, when If you look at ocean conditions, it's, it's well documented that they're improved. And down in the States, I think because of all the hydroelectric 
developments. Yeah. You guys have different barriers to deal yeah, with. We do. Literal we do. barriers to migration. Up here on the Skeena, we have a situation where we have a tremendous amount of habitat. We have a situation where we don't have a lot of steelhead, never have. Okay. Um, people are really shocked to learn how few steelhead there, there are. That, that yeah. highest year, 1998, that was just over 60,000 fish. Okay. Um, that's not that many when you look at what some of the, the rivers in, in yeah. Oregon get, right? So our fish have access to a huge amount of habitat. Our fish are tremendously diverse in their life history. And if you spent a lot of time as an angler poking around Skeena country, you'll notice that the watershed itself, I mean, to look at the copper versus the Kispiox versus the Maurice, it's, it's all super diverse and super unique. And, you know, that varied life history you know, I have very little concern about, about our fishery going downhill. And I know people might say, Hey, you're a guide. You're obviously you're going to paint a rosy picture, but you know, the, the truth of the matter is I could get out of this business and do something different if I was worried about it. And I don't think that, I don't think that, um, the right move is for anglers to, to give up access. You could apply this, you know, well outside of Skeena country. I think there's no advantage to removing anglers from a system. I think when you take away the anglers, you take away the eyes, you encourage poaching, and you lose the advocates. I, I think when we look at bigger picture challenges, and certainly the skein has had some, we, you know, we almost had fish farms at the mouth. We've almost had coal bed methane drilling. We almost had a bitumen pipeline. It was anglers combined with, you know, local environmentalists and indigenous people that really pushed back against that. And one of the great arguments to a politician when it comes to, you know, going up against a, a big resource extraction project is, you know, how many jobs and dollars are at stake. So the more people are spending to catch the least amount of fish, the better off we are. And why I say least amount of fish, I think that it's important for the individual angler to be aware of, of their, their impacts. And, and what I mean by that is specifically catch and release mortality. So the best way to reduce catch and release mortality is, of course, to catch less fish. But we've also made great, great inroads. Even in the time that you've had this podcast, I think what we've seen yeah. is a trend towards fish being photographed in the water. We've seen a trend towards just general better fish handling, you know, barbless hooks, smaller hooks, and, and anglers yeah. wanting to minimize their impact. So, you know, anglers are very adaptable, and I think the measure of a good day has changed. And I'll use, I'll use my lodge here as, as probably one of the best examples. The previous owners, the product that they sold was, was come to Canada and take a box of fish home. And then towards the end of their tenure... A box of steelhead? No, well, I think at, at the beginning, you could keep steelhead, sure. But, you yeah. know, they, at that time, it was Chinook because that was bigger, right? But, yeah. you know, you could keep steelhead at the time they were operating. So, beginning people came here to catch their limit of fish. Then our area was marketed as, hey, come here and kill a big one, right? Come, <laughs> come to Terrace and catch the biggest fish of your life. Hit it over the head and take it home with you. Um, and now... I, and I think this is true of pretty much every single lodge on the Skeena. Everyone is experience-based. Everyone is, is, is operating yeah. catch and release. And you see an emphasis on the holistic experience of a steelhead lodge. And what I mean by that is, you know, if, if you come and stay with us, you're going to have the best food in Terrace. Um, I believe we have the best guides because my guides will be able to help you with your casting. My guides know the history of the area. Uh, yeah. My guides are you know, going to be able to enhance your day. And when you leave from fishing with us, you're going to be a better angler because of what you've learned here, regardless of whether or not we put a fish in the net. And, and I think that that's where the value lies. If you're, if you're in this business is, is the educational side and giving people an appreciation for the natural world. And, 
If we yeah. can do that, I think that the fish are going to be in a better place because number one thing is obviously going to be protect habitat. And that's where, uh, that's where our strength is. We don't have those dams. So our fish have no barriers to migration. The habitat's intact and, and the advocates are here. So yeah. I, I have a very, yeah. very optimistic outlook for skiing in particular, but you know, the importance of, of anglers, keeping anglers on the water and, and, and obviously engaged with fish politics. Yeah. I love that take. I think that's a, a great way to look at it. And one of the other, you know, I have a few other questions here before, you know, we start to think about taking it out of here. But um, one of them is on just the, the, the timing and fishing. Like if somebody was coming up from the lower, from the U.S. up there, um, what's that look like as far as, because I know there was, there's some changes like, like when you can fish. Talk about that a little bit. Like if somebody's planning a trip right now, I mean, we're obviously September now, but maybe for next year, next summer, um, what should they be thinking about? Is that pretty st- straightforward? Yeah. So last year, in response to the lowest return um, recorded, uh, I think the government made a good move. They ended the season, you know, in mid-October. And and why I think this made sense is once you get to that part of the season, the catch rates are higher. And the reason they're higher, especially up the system, is the fish aren't going anywhere. You know, they're they're terminal. They're in they're in the runs. They're they're going to hang out in, and they're very accessible. And, you know, generally speaking, catch and release mortality is worse, the more a fish is going to, more times a fish gets caught. So I think it was a good reaction to, you know, keep, keep the public engaged, keep the value in the fishery, minimize the impacts. Obviously, you know, a single day of commercial fishing, and even that the mortality associated with the Thai test fishery is probably higher than the catch and release mortality, you know, taking place here on the lower Skeena with the angling public. Um, but I think if people are, are concerned about, okay, what happens if we get another low return? What's the government's reaction going to be? I believe it's, it's likely to be similar to last year that, you know, they would end the season prematurely. So with that in mind, I would steer folks towards, towards a September trip versus an October trip. But at the same time, once, once the tie indicates a healthy run, like we have this year, you know, this season will, will extend through October. So it's not too late if people want to come up to the Skeena, regardless of whether they're fishing down here where we are, or they're going to go up um, Babine, Bulkley, Susta, Maurice, something like that. Um, you know, o- October can be a great time of year too. But I'll tell you, my, my own personal favorite, I like my fish fresh. Um, I, I enjoy the weather earlier on in the season. I, I think you're hard pressed to find a better time to come to Skeena country than early September. Yeah, early September. Perfect. So that's that's good. And then, and if it is somebody coming up, say we're putting together a trip, there is still some restrictions, right? Like you can't fish on weekends. Has anything changed there on that, or what's that look like? Yeah, you know, I, I often thought it might be a fun coffee table book to put together all of the, the high quality swung fly fisheries in the world and how they're managed. You know, in Quebec, we yeah. have our ZEC system and, and some of the stuff they do in Europe. And here we came up with this. I'm mean, gonna call it harebrained classified water <laughs> system where and quality water strategy where, where basically you as as a non-resident alien can't fish unguided on say the bulkley on the weekend oh it's unguided yeah. yeah well and there's some places it's, it's quite complicated right because there's some places where you can't fish guided uh so as an example the the kitsum calum river often called the calum river yeah there's no guiding there on sundays okay <laughs> um <laughs> non-resident aliens can't fish the copper on friday saturday or sunday um, there's other sections of, of the Skeena that are restricted. So y- you really need to do your homework if you come yeah. up here and you're on your own and to make sure that you stay on the right side of the law, because we've come up with some, 
some pretty funky regulations. Yeah. And I'll, I'll tell you, I don't believe that it's successful because what I believe happens is, is people adapt. And if, if you can't fish, if you're, if you're a do-it-yourself angler and you're looking to fish the bulkly Maurice, um, and you go, okay, well, I can't fish it on, on a weekend. So I'm going to time my trip. So I'm doing like what everybody else is doing. I'll be there midweek and we'll create yep. a busier experience at that. Time. Right. And if I'm right. extend through the weekend, I'm going to end up fishing. I won't name these waters, but I'm going to end up fishing these other waters that I can fish on a weekend, but everybody's then it's on busier that there. program. So I don't, I don't think that it, it, as a strategy, it was successful. I think it concentrated the angling pressure. And like anything in nature, when when, when the weekend was yeah. was left a little bit open, then now you have the BC tourists. So a lot of them are coming from Vancouver. Now they're concentrating their trip to the Copper or the Bulkley to take advantage right. of that weekend. So yeah, I don't think it was a successful strategy, but yeah, but I get on them for trying, I suppose. Yeah, they tried. Well, so that's that's one. And then the other thing on that um, kind of the habitat stuff. So you mentioned, yeah, obviously the. Uh, you know, BC, you guys, Eskina, there's no, you know, the 4-H's hatchery, habitat, harvest, hydro, right? You guys yep. don't really have any, you know, I mean, you don't have any. The only thing you have really to worry about is habitat, and you, you've got some logging and industrial stuff. But the big thing really is ocean conditions, right? So I think that's that's maybe the scare factor for everybody or a lot of people, right? They think like, okay, sure, the runs have been up and down. They've been bigger and all, like you talked about, which has happened. But then people are like, wow, we throw on top climate change. You know, we're, we're like, right, everybody's the, the doomsday. We're ruining the planet. How does that play into? I think that's what everybody's really worried about. Is that something that gets you fired up at all? Or do you, how do you, how do you look at that? So interesting thing, my business partner, Malcolm Wood, um, is, is a huge advocate of, you know, climate change issues. So he is, he makes movies. One of, one of his most recent movies is actually an IMAX. It's called the last glaciers. It's about how uh, glaciers throughout the world are disappearing mm. at, a, at an increased space. And, and the key issue here is of course, there's large populations of people that depend on those glaciers as a water source. So, you know, thinking of that, thinking that, okay, well, obviously we should all be doing our part to, to slow this stuff down. You know, what are the fish going to do? How are they going to react? And, don't get me wrong. I think there's there's throughout the natural range of steelhead from Alaska to California. I think there's places that are going to be hit harder than others, especially when we start thinking about water temperature. Right. Um, we also could be having a conversation about you know siltation, which is a product of forest fires. This is something you see on the Fraser, where you know we had pine beetles that used to not be able to make it through the winter, but now the winters aren't cold enough, so now you have a bunch of of pine beetle kill forest that's tinder dry and lights up. We have massive forest fires, which then lead to, you know, huge issues with siltation, um, yeah. you know, which are amplified by the fact that we dike the lower river. But, you know, let's go back to water temperature. So thinking of the Skeena system, we don't generally have an issue with water getting too warm. And if you start thinking about the northern part of Steelhead, the Steelhead Range, I think we're already finding situations where, the most northern salmon populations are actually actually adapting and 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 proliferating because areas that were too cold are now more suitable. So oh, I, right. I, I don't know. I right, think right. I think we'll we'll be surprised by what happens with with steelhead. Yeah. And I think that you know throughout the course of history, I'm looking at it right now. We had a real bad batch of returns in the 70s. Now, I have a a friend of me, Bob Hooten is his name. Oh yeah, yeah. Uh, Hooten. Bob Bob and I will have great <laughs> conversations, but. But there's a lot of stuff we disagree on. And, and Bob's brand is the sky is falling. I call him Chicken Little, by the way. Gotcha. Um, 
I've April Volke tried to get him and I to have a, a public debate on this, but he wouldn't oh, do nice. it. Oh, nice. But he, that's not why I call him Chicken Little. I call him Chicken Little because if you read his stuff, he is like, hey, wake up. You know, yeah. Rome is burning and, you know, we're not doing anything. And I yeah. tend to have a different outlook. I, I tend to say, hey, look, you know, Bob will say the reason we had poor returns in the 70s is because the, you know, the commercial fleets took all the fish. Yeah. Um, Bob will also tell you that currently we have indigenous nets that are taking the fish or the, the commercial seine boats in southeast Alaska taking the fish. The reality is, is there's been bycatch all throughout history. And what we don't know, because there is actually no, no observer program, what, what the amount of that is and where those fish are going. But once the fish are back in the river, th- so those escapement numbers the, in the 70s and the 80s, yeah. and I'm going to actually bump all the way ahead to 1997. So in 1997, we, you know, we had a run that wasn't that strong. But in 1998, we had a huge return. Those fish came out of the same ocean. So that, to me, is good evidence of how quickly things can change with, with, with an improvement in ocean conditions. But also looking back to some of those lower years, which would have been brood years for, for years that have improved, what we know about steelhead here on the Skeena is that you don't need a large run to create a large run. Because when you have a period of low returns, those of low returning adults, their progeny fare exceptionally well. They get to occupy the best habitat predator numbers go down a little bit and if the habitat's intact and the habitat's working and we, we're not concerned about hatcheries we're not concerned about dams uh, you know the habitat will produce will properly seed the you know will seed a number of the correct amount of outgoing smolts yeah. and if those outgoing smolts end up in favorable ocean conditions you know they can come back but we'll, what we don't need to worry about is if you have a year or two that's that's lower it's just a very natural fluctuation of things and it's been that way as long as we've been paying attention and it's very much i think right now in in vogue for people to say oh you know we have a salmon crisis but yeah we have a salmon crisis and you know i think some of the ngos are to blame because hey it's 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 in their wheelhouse to to try and get people concerned and engaged, but I think we also have to be really careful to keep things reality based. And, and the reality is, stay away from hatcheries. There's no, yeah. there's no evidence that hatcheries are going to save wild fish, and there's a ton of evidence that shows that that they're going to lead to de- the demise of wild fish. So we stay out of the hatchery game. We protect the habitat. We do our very best to understand bycatch, which is essentially you know gill nets and such, right? And then. And then lastly, as anglers, we do our very best to understand our own impacts. And on a personal level, that probably means catching less fish. I, I think a catch and release limits are a great topic of conversation and something that could probably be implemented anywhere. Um, and, you know, whether it's a person swinging a fly or whether it's someone with a spinning glow like me with my kids, um, I think you just need to be very cognizant of, of what you're doing and, and how you can best minimize your impact. And if, if we can stick to all that, I, I feel very optimistic about the future, Dave. Perfect. No, that's a good take. I'll, I'll leave it there for now until our next conversation. Uh, you know, hopefully we'll, we'll have another one of these down the line, but um, let's start to take it out of here just uh, quickly. You know, we occasionally do this, this segment, it's an oldie, but a goodie, the, the two twenty two. Um, but I kind of wanted to have that wrap up kind of tips, you know, flies kind of resources, a little bit of that. And, and you talked about, you know, we were talking, I was trying to focus on main stem. We kind of looked at a year and, you know, what you do at the lodge. Uh, we haven't really highlighted that lodge too much, but, um, the Skeena Spay Lodge, right. It's, it's a place that if somebody wanted to connect with you, they can do that pretty easily. 
Um, but what else? Did we miss anything else today when you think of like somebody's listening now, they want to go up to Skeena this next year. They're going to try to hit some of this water. I mean, one thing that comes to my mind, of course, you got the techniques, but you also have the pressure. Do you see, I've heard stories about the bulkly, right? In the last 10 years, it's just got super busy. Do you see that as an issue? And I know the government's tried to do some things, but like if they come down to the Skeena, is that the same thing? Is it hard to find a run to fish? Um, yeah, so I should clarify a lot of the lodges up here have very similar sounding names. So the, the, the name that we go by is Skeena Spay Riverside Wilderness and Lodge. And okay. uh, from a crowding standpoint, you know, I think that the government is really bad at a lot of things that it tries to get involved in. And, and controlling angling pressure is, is certainly in that category of things I don't think that they would be very successful at. Uh, I think that as anglers, we probably are the best at that. What I mean by that is if, if you're fishing a particular river and, and you feel there's too many people fishing a set stretch, you will go to a different spot. You're not inclined to park beside someone and then walk into the same run they're fishing. No, unless you want to get potentially in a fight, depending on where you're at. Well, our, our tolerance for (laughs) density changes, right? Um, but the Skeena system as a whole is, is relatively unsubscribed, but there's portions of the Skeena system, which for whatever reason, could be classified as quite busy. Um, I'm not going to name the names because I don't want to contribute to that, but I will characterize them by saying these are places that tend to have fairly easy access. These are places that tend to have a history of people fishing around them. So when someone is coming up here for the first time, rather than fishing a stretch that they looked at on Google Earth that they think looks interesting, instead they they fish a a stretch that maybe they've heard of. And so I think as anglers, if, if we just understand that there is a lot of places to fish and we don't need to race someone to get the best spot, and, and certainly on the Skeena, we do not deal with this one bit. I'll tell you, our, our program here is super relaxed. We have breakfast at 7, we hit the water at 8, we're done at 5. I don't spend a minute of the day worrying about what anyone else is doing fishing-wise, where they're fishing, beating them somewhere. Um, we if I was guiding on a river like, say, the Copper or the Kispiox, maybe I might employ some strategy because it's a smaller water, but we don't guide on those those pieces. But I also think that, you know, you can look at the timing of your trip and say, okay, well, I, I shot my big mouth off and told everybody that I like the first two weeks of September as the ideal time to come to Skeena country. But I wasn't mentioning that so much because I, I felt that the catch rates were higher or the fishing was better. I was looking at it through the lens of, hey, I, I like the weather generally at that time of year. Uh, I like the length of the day. It just kind of makes sense to me. Uh, if someone wanted to to have less people, they could come, you know, earlier or later. But, you know, to me, I think that the best advice I can give anyone coming to the Skeena system for the first time is plan to be mobile. Plan to fish three or four different rivers, you know, and come for as long a period as, as your, your schedule will allow. Don't come up with the idea that you're going to fish three days and you're going to learn a lot and everything's going to work out great water-wise. Yeah. You know, to hit good water, you know, you, you might want to be prepared to not fish for a couple of days here and there. So yeah, um, extend right. your trip as long as possible. Cover as much ground as you can. Try and fish spots that that you haven't before. And, you know, please, please, if you see a bunch of people fishing a stretch of river, there's there's no reason to, to park alongside them and go join them. Yeah. You know, spread the pressure out. That's the best move. That's great. Okay, perfect. Well, let's take it out. Like I said, the 222, so flies, uh, tips, resources. So give me your flies. So we're on there. Let's say we're in that uh, midsummer, right, August, where we're doing the technique where you're dropping into the bucket. What's the, what are, what are a couple of flies you're putting? Oh, let's do one for that time and then one for later. And maybe it doesn't matter, but give me a couple here. 
Yeah, you know, I, I think that flies are fun. Um, it's good to fill a box before you do your trip. It's part of the whole process, you know, tying them or buying them, whatever works for you. Um, I always encourage people, whatever they're tying, to do them in different sizes, right? So if, if you like a, an orange prawn, like a, like Mike Orlowski's Mikey prawn, that's mm. an awesome fly, tie them small, tie them big, and, and then you can adapt to water conditions. Uh, a great fly that I use a lot is, is tied by a buddy of mine, Stuart Foxall. It's called Stuart's Steely Pig. If someone wants to email me, I can uh, email them back direct tying directions for either of these flies. Perfect. And of course, you know, intruders are a, a skeena standard yep. and once again, tie them in different sizes. Gotcha. Okay. And just quickly on that, the small versus big, when are you using a, what's the smallest fly you use? What's the biggest? And then when would you use either? If the water's super clear, I'm, I could go down to an inch and a half of fly length. If the water is a little bit murky and and I'm worried about visibility, I might tie something really flashy on that's five and a half inches, maybe even six inches long. Nice. Most of the time, whatever I put on your line is going to be about three inches long, three and a half. Yeah, three inches. Okay. And uh, and then so a couple of tips. So we're sitting in that run. Um, let's just again, we're talking that you you went pretty deep into that technique with the the sinking lines a little bit, like we said. Um, what would be, if you're sitting on that run, give us a couple more tips that get us into a fish. You mentioned a few, but what else would you tell somebody if they haven't hooked up yet? Yeah, I, I think casting distance is something that we can't talk enough about. I, when I pick people up from the airport, I, I explain it to them. And I, and I have this story um, that I often use to illustrate it. And it goes like this. We once had this guy here from Europe who was a tremendous caster, one of the best distance casters I've ever seen. And he was fishing the skeena at the same time I had uh, a family here from, from the Western States. And, you know, these, these kids were like 10 or 12 years old. We get a lot of families here at the lodge. And this was literally their first fly fishing trip. And these kids could get out the head and maybe a, a couple feet of running line. And they were consistently catching fish. And the, the gentleman who was the extremely skilled caster was not catching fish. Mm. And, you know, he kind of came to me and said, what are they doing? I said, well, look at them. Look where they're fishing and look where you're fishing. And once he made that that adaptation, you know, his success rate went up too. So so my number one tip is always going to be wade shallow, cast short. Fish, that the magical part of the skeena is the first bit where you can't see the bottom, right? The first bit where you can't see what's going on. That's the part you really want to focus on. Don't wade deep. Don't cast far unless you're casting for the sake of casting, which obviously is, is a fun thing to do, but doesn't really lead to catching a lot of fish. Yep. Perfect. Love that. That was a uh, weight shallow uh, cast uh, short. You got it. Weight shallow cast short. Okay. So, uh, so resources, just a couple. We talked about a couple of different things here, and it sounds like you're the type of person that probably has figured all the, a lot of this out on your own, especially recently. But what would be a resource? Maybe a resource for if somebody wanted to dig into the conservation more on that, and then something for to dig more into the Skeena kind of spay and steelhead. Like this could be this could be like book, magazine, YouTube video, website, other, you know what I mean? Somebody else you know, that sort of thing. I'm going to give a, a shout out to, uh, to Bob Hooten's book. The, yeah. the the Skeena book. Um, nice. It, it's a good history piece. It, it explains in great detail the impact that we suspect the commercial fishery has had on on Skeena, um, Skeena fish. And I think it's it's good required reading. Uh, but at the same time, you know, I, I think what's also important is for people to understand that that's a look in the rearview mirror, even though it's presented as, hey, this is the direction we're going. And, and I think that if people want to get involved from a conservation standpoint, 
we don't know how many fish, how many steelhead got intercepted, say this year, when we have this, this large sockeye return, you know, 4 million fish or whatever we ended up with. Now, the government made some adjustments. They, uh, they closed out commercial fishing after the first week of August. So there was you know, safe passage for, for fish after that point for the most part. But what we don't know is what percentage of fish get intercepted because at this point we don't have a viable observer program. So if people wanted to get involved, what I would encourage them to do is to write DFO, not the province, but Department of Fisheries and Oceans, and, and demand that they have observers on those sockeye boats, not because we're trying to stop the commercial fishery, just so we can understand what percentage of, of the steelhead yeah. run is, is not making it upriver. Right. And, and from there, perhaps, you know, we can, we can push for, you know, whether it's weed lines, you know, dropping the nets down, shorter set times, you know, spreading the pressure out, but we, we can at least better understand what, what the interception is. And, you know, on the Alaska side, the fishery around Noise Island in Southeast Alaska is, and this is in Hooten's book, is, is regarded as an area where a lot of steelhead are, are intercepted for, from same boats targeting pinks and chum. And a simple solution would be to push Alaska to move those commercial fisheries targeting those pinks and chum uh, closer to where those fish are, are heading and away from, you, you know, the migration path around Noise Island. But once again, I think, you know, if you're American, that that's kind of something you can do. And, and if you're Canadian, it makes sense to to speak to your own government. But you know, keeping the value in the fishery and when you write those letters, explaining, you know, how much people are spending to to target these steelhead and how important these steelhead are, you know, culturally to everybody. And also, you know, from a financial standpoint, and then perhaps the government will will be willing to take those steps. But step number one is to understand what the bycatch is. And step number two is to find ways to mitigate it. And what about on that line as far as the spay or steelhead game? Like if somebody wanted to dig into a resource, would you have anything you recommend or something in the past that's helped you, you know, through all this? Yeah, you know, I think that finding a good mentor. I mean, sure, you, yeah. can, you can find something on YouTube that's great. But when I think back to, you know, my own trajectory through spay casting, it was who I was able to gain access to and, and how they, what I learned from them. I think that that's key. And if anyone's really keen on improving their spay casting, the number one way to do it is get yourself a long belly setup and, and go find a lake, whether you're casting off the corner of the dock or whether you're wading in off the beach, that's where you become a good caster is, is yeah. casting on flat water with a longer belly line. Love that. And, and I got to, I got to tell you, cause we didn't get into this, but I, I will yeah. maybe close out on this. I hate the term, okay, I'm an underhand caster, I'm a skagit caster. I know I'm going to piss some people off with this. Good casting is good casting. And the same principles I use when I'm casting a long belly setup drop all the way down to my shortest skagit. My number one cast with my skagit setup is always going to be a single spay. The number mm -hmm. two cast is probably a snake roll. I use touch and go casts all the time. Um, you can absolutely do them well with skagit gear. But every single skagit cast also comes into play. I'll use a circle cast when I'm in tight. Um, I'll use a peri poke a lot of times, you know, if I'm, yeah. if I'm worried about punching through some wind and stuff, get good at doing all the casts and, and spend time focusing on your casting rather with wool on there rather than fishing. That's how someone becomes a skilled caster. And, and by all means, read and watch everything, you get your hands on. But if, if you can find someone who's willing to help you, uh, it, it's way more fun to practice your casting with a partner. Nice. Nice. Love that. Okay. Well, I'm going to leave a bunch of stuff on the table here and, and uh, we'll have to save it for part two if we could get this together. But uh, 
Yeah, Brian, we'll send everybody out to, um, I guess, skinaflyfishing.com and uh, I'll have some links to your kind of uh, phone number, email, stuff like that so they can connect with you if they want to take this conversation further. But um, yeah, thanks again for all the time today and definitely look forward to keeping in touch with you. Right on. It's been a pleasure. So there it is, wetflyswing.com slash 370. You know what you're going to get over there. Some good videos, some good links, everything we talked about. You'll see a step-by-step a transcript. If you're interested in finding, if you had any questions you want to search back, this is the easy way to do it. Go into the transcript at the bottom of the blog post, and you can search for any word, and it'll pop up that exact location, and you can listen to it right there in the blog post. Quick reminder before we get out of here, uh, we got one spot left for the Great Lakes Steelhead as I speak. Um, so if it is still available, you can connect with me, Dave at wetflyswing.com and send uh, in the subject line in that email, just put Steelhead School and, uh, and give it a chance. If there's one left, if we still have that one left, um, I'll check back with you right away. Quick listener shout out, uh, one of our guests on the Steelhead School, James Gibson, gonna be meeting up with James and the rest of the crew Coming up on this steelhead school, we are going to be getting our spay game dialed in. We're going to be getting some steelhead on the fly. We're going to be getting some shorter uh, spay tactics. Um, we got Jeff Liskay, one of the masters of this. So we are all excited to do this. And we're probably going to put together another podcast episode um, before we get there to talk about what we have going and, uh, and give you a little chance to get insight into that. I'd love to hear from you. If you get a chance, you can send me an email, Dave at wetflyswing.com. And, uh, and just if you have any questions, any uh, ideas for episodes, guests, anything, you can check with me anytime. Getting ready to push off here in a couple of days on another big trip. Uh, we are heading out for some summer steelhead, hopefully. Uh, and it seems like we're on track, especially after this episode where Brian painted a picture of of the ups and downs of the steelhead run. Um, you know, we talked about it in that little segment in the middle where uh, in the past they've gone from some of the worst runs in history to some of the best. So we're hoping that this year is going to be one of the best and, uh, and it's looking better already. So uh, I wonder how your run is doing. I hope you're having a good time uh, right now with your fishing uh, this time of year. And if you have any questions, please check in with me. I'm going to get out of here and I would love to catch up with you on this trip. If you get a chance, send me an email. I'd love to see you on the water. If I can't see you on the water, check in with me online, uh, wet fly swing. And I hope you have a good evening, a good morning, or a good afternoon, wherever in the world you are. I'll talk to you soon. Thanks for listening to the Wet Fly Swing Fly Fishing Show. For notes and links from this episode, visit wetflyswing.com.